Good morning. Welcome to the March 2nd, 2023 uh, Planning Board meeting um, uh, on this date. In uh, 1963, the Montgomery County Council designated this week as 4-H week, the theme being Citizens in Action. The county at the time, in 1963, had 58 4-H clubs with over 1,200 members in both rural and urban areas. Uh, we've changed a little bit. Uh, I, I welcome everybody. We have a, a lot of uh, paper today. This uh, is a unique meeting because uh, we uh, are saying goodbye to uh, three of our compatriots here who we thank very much for their service. Uh, if, if you'd like to say something now or later, later, okay. Uh, we'll, we'll proceed with the meeting. Um, and the first thing we have is the adoption of resolutions. We'll, we'll do this in sets because uh, uh, Commissioner Presley uh, was absent on the first resolution we're going to adopt. It's for Oarsman Ford at Montgomery Mall, uh, Site Plan 8, uh, 2009, uh, 014C. Uh, can I have a motion to approve? Move approval, Mr. Chair. Second. All those in favor say aye. 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 Four to zero. Thank you. Now I have uh, two other uh, resolutions. Tregoni Property Pre-Preliminary Plan 7 2022 uh, and Donner Party at Gray's Lane. Oh, property. <laughs> <laughs> we were cautioned about it. <laughs> oh, just and it was in my brain. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no comment. Um, at, at Gray's Lane, uh, that's an administrative subdivision uh, 6 2023 uh, I'll entertain a motion to approve those two resolutions. So move, Mr. Chair. Second. Second. All those in favor say aye. 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 Aye, five zero. We we have a wave of the hand from Commissioner Presley. Um, we have the uh, approval of, of minutes, and uh, uh, we have uh, three minutes to approve from February 9th, February 16th, February 23rd. I'll entertain a motion to approve. So moved. Second. Second. All those in favor say aye. 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 Okay. Mr. Chair, I'd, I'd like to zero. just make a comment on the February 23 minutes. Uh, Ms. Rorich did a fantastic job turning those around on a difficult <laughs> session to write about so we could uh, act on today. Thank you. One of these, the things that everybody should notice is that we are trying to clear all of the administrative items that this board did so the next board doesn't have to rehear everything in order to approve minutes or approve resolutions or or do that work. So we thank staff for, for the wads of paper that we have in front of us for, to, to accomplish that goal. Um, all right, uh, other preliminary patterns. We, we have uh, Deborah Borden, if you'd like to come up and tell us about state legislation. Thank you, Mr. Chair, Deborah Borden for the record, uh, General Counsel for the Commission. I am here to update you on uh, two bills in particular. Um, it would have been three. We had to pull back on the third 
that was the um, stream restoration bill. Um, the reason we had to pull back on that is because we only just got a chance to speak with the sponsor yesterday. We were hoping to have spoken with her uh, well ahead of yesterday. Um, but it, in speaking with her, it changed our, our view of the recommendation. So we're going to relook at that, re reconsider the recommendation, and um, and present that uh, you know maybe next week. So um, uh, I will go forward on. Let's see. I'm sorry. I I did have a little PowerPoint slide. I don't know. Can someone pull that up? It's just really one slide. We can we can go forward without it. Um, so the uh, first bill I'll talk about is HB 797. That is the bill that only applies to the commission uh, in, in reference to our collective bargaining. It adds a, a section on mediation slash arbitration uh, when we are in mid-cycle bargaining. So it's not the full contract bargaining, it's the mid-cycle. Generally, mid-cycle means things that we didn't anticipate things that are new, things that are um, happening in real time, like the COVID pandemic, where we had several um, uh, instances where we needed to, to bargain for emergency pay, for um, uh, different scheduling, for telework. We, we bargained all of those things with our unions. I think we ended up having 12 different um, uh, mid-cycle agreements that we had to have just for COVID. So that was an unusual situation. Hopefully that is not going to happen again. But we do have things that come up. And so in the mid-cycle bargaining, there was no requirement for binding arbitration in mid-cycle. This bill, 797, would include that in our section that we have to have binding arbitration. We didn't think it was necessarily required. We thought that the system was working fine. But the um, delegation made it clear to us that they thought that, that this should be added. So as a result, we provided to them um, uh, amendment language so that it would be tailored to our section of the code, so that it wouldn't be unclear, so that it wouldn't um, in, introduce any uncertainty about how and what was being said. So um, what we did was we added the term or uh, the, the to the section um, of uh, 16209 of land use article, any term or condition of the collective bargaining agreement that requires appropriation of funds or the enactment or adoption of any regulation or which has or may have a present or future fiscal impact are subject to approval of the Montgomery County Council and the Prince George's County Council. We got that language directly from the Montgomery County Code, um, with the, uh, obviously with, with the addition of the Prince George's County Council um, approval. And that is the way that uh, binding arbitration is done for Montgomery County employees. We've simply copied that language so that we will be treated the same. So um, hopefully that is, is OK. And, and if you have any questions about that, uh, I'll stop here. Well, uh, 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 excellent amendment and preserves the council's authorities with regard to their own pocketbook. That, that was our feeling. And we did um, run that language by our labor council, uh, Craig Ballou. And he was in, in agreement with that. Uh, so 
that uh, we do expect that that uh, will pass both delegations and um, go on to the um, General Assembly Committee uh, for approval. The second bill that I have today is SB 526. That is the major, major update to the uh, State's Forest Conservation Act. Um, we had brought this to you a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about um, uh, speaking with MAKO about doing this as a summer study, because this is a big, big update. Um, it turns out that the General Assembly, the, you know, the members are really looking to do something this time. They're not looking to pull back and do a summer study. They want to pass something this session. So um, in, in that regard, we need to be at the table um, dealing with amendments to this bill uh, because it's got to be a big enough tent for all of us to fit. Um, all of us meaning the, the entire state, but certainly all of us, you know, for, for our purposes, the Montgomery County and Prince George's County needs to be able to um, comply with this bill. And these are two different counties. Uh, you know, we are one commission, but these are different counties with different goals and different uh, opportunities um, that they are working on. Uh, and we need to make sure that the, the statewide bill uh, accommodates all of, their, all of their opportunities and goals. So we have put together a line-by-line -line amendment document. And I can just summarize for you um, it's, it, the, the, the uh, foundation of what we are trying to do is based on three things. The ratio, we are uh, pretty confident that we can get to a one-to-one -one ratio either through a phase-in of the one-to-one -one or grandfathering. Um, so with, with those two caveats, we would be willing to say that both of our counties can get to a one-to-one -one ratio, either, uh, e either over time, you know, a four- to five-year phase-in period, or a grandfathering period that mirrors the same. Uh, in return for getting to a one-to-one, because, -one, again, we are going from a quarter-acre to one-acre replacement to a one-acre to one-acre replacement. That is still a significant increase. So in return for getting to that increase, we think that the uh, retention banks, the, the restrictions on the retention banks should be pulled back. We need to be able to use retention banks as a tool. Um, we need to be able to establish new retention banks and then use those credits it, just the way that we were using them before. So that would be something that we would need to see in the bill and in the uh, amendments. And then the third thing would be that, we, that they would have to pull back on requiring almost everything to get a variance. That, that would simply just not be practical. It would sort of shut us down. We, we would literally not be able to do anything if everything needed a variance and, and with increased variance um, uh, requirements. So they've got to pull back on that. So that is our, that's our sort of our, you know, the three-legged stool that we would need going forward in any negotiation um, with the uh, sponsors. The other thing is um, that we do like the fact that the local governments can, in the, uh, in the proposed uh, bill, the local governments can uh, provide their own program as long as it gets to no net loss. We like that. We want to keep that. We just want to make sure that um, the parameters to, de to determine who, uh, you know, which program does demonstrate no, no net loss, that those are agreed upon 
and that we understand what DNR is going to be looking at, uh, at you know, in order to demonstrate that for a, for a tailored program, for a local program. Um, and we also want to make sure that the, um, the, uh, the process to get DNR approval makes sense and makes sense and is practical in, in the sense that they only have so much staff, there are a number of counties and municipalities that are going to be looking for local approval, and we need to give DNR enough time and give us enough time to do that. Uh, I think the bill currently has us having all of our local uh, programs approved by October, which is just not feasible. So we're going to have to you know, massage that time period. But those are the basic uh, uh, parameters that we were, are asking for so that we can be at the table negotiating these amendments. Uh, this is going to go very quickly. And we're going to need, you know, just some sort of authority to, to you know, to sort of make these deals. Um, I will say the sponsors are very responsive to us. We have met with them three or four times already in this session. We've met with C CBF, uh, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. We've met with MAKO several times as well. So everybody is working on this. Everybody. It's all hands on deck. We are trying to get something that will be workable for all of us, but particularly you know, of course, our concern is Montgomery and Prince George's counties. Prince George's County Executive, I will um, uh, mention, uh, <laughs> is very concerned about this bill and is very interested in uh, these amendments. And so we have been coordinating with them as well they, because they, they have some really big projects that are coming online in Prince George's. And, uh, you know, the way that the bill uh, is originally drafted would seriously hamper those, those efforts. So, uh, you know, the county exec staff has been working feverishly on this as well, and we have been coordinating with them. Commissioner Presley has a question. Yes. I have some statements. Oh, okay. Uh, first of all, why, why, isn't, why aren't we coming across with just a flat-out no? Because this program itself is, is absolutely juxtaposed to what we're trying to do with encouraging new and affordable housing and putting more and more exactions on developers when we're trying to get things that we need makes no sense to me. So, okay, that's my rant. But as far as what can be done, is there no organization that is coming up to oppose this completely? Uh, well, we've had one committee hearing and um, the only organization that did oppose it completely, although it was a, it, it was a rather soft opposition, was MML. Everyone else uh, has supported with amendments, and we appeared for inf informational uh, purposes only because we didn't have your approval to take a position. Um, and so we uh, submitted testimony informationally, and we did testify informationally. Um, we would like to be able to say that we support with amendments, assuming we can get our basic amendment points through that we would support that uh, so that we can have a seat at the table. Uh, we are concerned okay. that if we simply oppose and say this is terrible, we're not, you know, this, this shouldn't be done, um, that mutes our voice and makes it so that they go and make the deals with Baltimore County and Howard County and Baltimore City, et cetera. And we can't afford to okay, do that. Can, can, can we ask from the sponsors the factual information they have on on uh, the consideration of the financial impact to our development process, to the developers, et cetera? Is there any, is there any real tangible information 
to support what's going on? I think they are relying on us to give that kind of information. They, they're they're okay. not going to so give will that, that be part? Okay, so so keeping this open is so that you can be at the table. Can we go for less than a one-to-one? -one? I think that that is going to be um, a difficult. I mean, we're talking about quadrupling, right? Yes, yes, we are. I think that less than one-to-one -one is going to be a difficult sell because the entire purpose of this is no net loss. Now, the issue is that on a local level, you know, local programs may be able to get to no net loss with less than a one-to-one -one ratio. Right. Because right. they can use other things that compensate, other things like the other tools in our toolbox, like retention right. banks, frankly. Uh, and Thank so, you. and so that is the that's the trade off that we're trying to get. You know, we have a minimum standard if you don't have a local program, but if you do have a local program, you can get to the goal line in other ways than going with this minimum standard. And so, so are we going to be looking at our? There's some development in queue. You know, things that haven't been approved yet and also developable land that ha is forested. Are we going to look at that to see how much that's going to hamper our ability to use those parcels? Well, we have already looked at that in Montgomery County because you are already, your staff is already working on and has been working on for quite some time, 12, 18 months, something like that, a, right. a no net loss local bill. And you're very far along. And actually, CBF used Montgomery County's bill you know, pending bill uh, as their poster child for how this is so wonderful, because um, mm. you know we have a local, a, an example of a local program that will get to the one-to-one -one without having a one-to-one -one ratio. As recommended okay. by the former board, the the uh, planning yeah. department is supporting a really uh, authored and is supporting a bill that's now in. Uh, committee hearings, and they went okay. through the calculations to determine that what we're doing would at least be one-to-one. -one. The, the key, of course, in all of this is the, um, the mitigation banks, uh, and uh, I have to read to everybody that, but if that stays in, we're opposed. <laughs> Uh, it's just yeah. too costly. Yeah. yeah, if that stays in, yes. I think that the Prince George's, not only the Prince George's side of the of the planning department, but also the um, Prince George's County Executive will be extremely opposed. That is a very, very uh, useful and, and um, important tool in Prince George's County. Mm -hmm. And the way it's written now, um, most of the land in Prince George's County where the banks would go wouldn't be eligible for a bank, which wow. makes no sense. Wow. Uh, you know, every county is different. Prince George's is different from Montgomery. They have different environmental resources, and they are very importantly located in different areas. Uh, and so we have to make sure that the statewide bill, like I said, is a big enough tent for everybody to fit under. And that's what we're going to do uh, uh, okay. with this, with the with these amendments. Um, so. You know, I, I I would love to give you a you know a one word answer, <laughs> but, 
but uh, that's not the world we're living in right now. So, um, you know, we're, we're going to have to try to make the best of this statewide bill so that we can function after it goes into effect. Commissioner Pinero? Yeah, hi. Um, I agree that we need a, a, a sit at the table, and I'm glad that we have been preparing in case this goes through, at least for, for Montgomery County, uh, to have a one, one for one. I'm just wondering um, right now, following up what uh, Commissioner Presley said, that you know who's who's in favor, who's against. What is the position? You mentioned Baltimore County, Baltimore City, other jurisdictions. Are they kind of neutral about this? Are they supportive? I mean, it seems like you know for us to kind of go and say no, which I, I don't think it's a good idea, but. You know, how, how do other uh, counties, uh, where do they stand on this? Well, I, I will give you a, a good example. So Mako um, had a vote, I think it was three or four weeks ago, and they voted, you know, and Mako has representatives from all of the counties. They voted to support with amendments this bill without knowing what the amendments were. So I think most of the counties that I've heard from have have. Um, taken the position that, look, we support this effort. What we need to do is work out the details. <laughs> uh, so, so everyone is being very, um, you know, careful uh, about this uh, because we, we all seem to know that this, this train is going to move without us if we don't, um, if we don't engage. Commissioner Hill. Yeah, I'm wondering, um, it sounds to me like a situation where some sort of ladder uh, levels might apply, and has anyone considered that? You keep talking about sort of one big tent, but it strikes me that you've got a couple urbanized counties in the state, right? Baltimore County, PG County, Montgomery County, um, maybe Anne Arundel, maybe Howard, uh, depending on how you count the density. And then you've got kind of three distinct geologic zones between the coastal Bay Area, the Midland farmland, and the western forests and mountains. and having one approach to all of those strikes me as not a good idea. Um, because on, on the same way in Montgomery County that we try to focus our development sort of down county where our infrastructure is, the state should be considering that too, right? The population areas with the high densities are the places that we should be accommodating the new population because that's where the infrastructure is. And I don't hear that coming out in what's being described. Well, the the feeling just generally is that the state legislation should um, endeavor to provide a baseline and then allow local jurisdictions to do that sort of, you know, tiered approach if, if, if need be, that sort of um, uh, recognizing that they've got unique issues, whether it's topography, geology, uh, whether it's, you know, the fact that they're Garrett County and they've got, you know, all the trees they can you know, shake a stick at, right? The, 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 the local uh, 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 differences and, and local needs should be handled at the local level, as opposed to trying to bake all of that into a monster state bill that would take us a year to figure out. Uh, and so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to give us all a baseline that we can all live with a baseline, and then let us loose and give us enough time, if we so choose, to create our own, um, our own program that gets us to the same place. 
Okay. I, Commissioner I, Branson? Yeah, just on the assumption that something will pass, because I think something will pass. Um, what, what does the legislation have as far as any sort of reporting or central enforcement? Like, who makes sure that all this, all these, you know, plans mm -hmm. um, go as planned? Well, baked into the uh, statute is a, an annual report to the Department of Natural Resources, the state DNR. Uh, and they would um, review those and there, there would be a time horizon. So it wouldn't be, they would get those reports yearly, but then there would be a time horizon. So either two, two years, two to four years, we're, we're actually still trying to work that out. Um, and then they would look to see whether you are in fact meeting your no net loss goals. So they would count up all the trees, all the forest, not the trees, but the forest, and look to see, you know, from 2020 to 2024, did you actually lose forest? And that would be DNR's job. And, and so let's suppose the answer is, oh, you strayed, you lost some stuff. What then? Well, again, that's something we're working on. But we would like it to be um, a let us help you uh, uh, situation. If um, a program is not working or is, is falling behind, then um, you know, DNR should have a, pro a protocol for reaching out to that jurisdiction, giving them you know, a certain amount of time to cure, and giving them opportunities, you know, giving them choices as to what they can do and helping them to get there, as opposed to making it punitive. You know, it, it's not as if you, know, you can you can banish a, a county and put it in jail. You know, the county is there and you have to work together. And so we want the, the you know, the, um, the, the uh, sort of the, the carrot approach as opposed to the stick approach. We, we think the carrot approach works better. So, so let's, let's suppose whatever approach they pick, right? Um, and let's suppose it does actually come down to the counties being able to, you know, make amends, if you will. Um, is there, and maybe, maybe, maybe you don't know the answer to this question because it, you know, probably not in your bailiwick. But is 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 there some county mechanism that would allow the county to then turn around to whoever may have, you know, however many folk may have caused this uh, thing to happen, right? how many projects or whatever that, that resulted in the, the loss. Is there a mechanism in, in county code that, that would allow the county to say, okay, now you guys have to pay up because now we got some problems. I mean, I, I'm wondering if, there's, if there is the underpinning of an unfunded mandate here somewhere. Um, well, there wouldn't really be any way to look back. Um, you know, the, the regulations at the time are the regulations at the time, and the developer has to follow them. And when they're pulling permits, either they've met those, those requirements, they've, they've checked those boxes, or they haven't. And if they have, no, we can't go back to them in five years and say, well, you know, you actually caused us to not meet our, our no net loss goal. That it's, it's too late. Uh, so we can't do that. Um, but we can, what we can do is make sure that we are monitoring in real time how we're doing. 
and where our goals are and where we should be at any given time uh, versus where we are at that time. And you know, that, so that's on us to do our, our you know, due diligence and, and do our monitoring. Because we don't ever really want to be in a place where we look up in five years and we're way behind. That, that, you know, that would be a failing on us. Uh, and so you know, it's up to us to, to do a good job to make sure that that doesn't happen. Okay, um, is everybody content to give the authorities to go forward with, uh, with approval with amendments? With, yes, <laughs> yes, I'm looking for the authority to um, discuss amendments with the sponsors and the other stakeholders within the parameters of what we've just discussed. Up to a one-to-one -one ratio, um, pulling back on the uh, restrictions on the retention banks, we've got to have retention banks and um, pulling back on the um, uh, variance uh, requirements that, have, that, have, that are way too onerous in the bill. I would say the limits of your authority is the bill that we have up to council. If, if the state law makes that illegal, we don't like that amendment. The state law thinks that, well, the, the um, CBF happens to think that the, that is the bee's knees. They, they, they really like that. They, um, they think that's the, the poster child for, uh, for what they mean by a local program. So I don't think we're going to be having that problem. I'm just giving you bounds here. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, any Commissioner Hill? Oh, oh, Commissioner Presley. I'm sorry, I didn't look. That's okay. I just, I mean, I'd be willing to make a motion. You know, to, certainly you guys have done a phenomenal job, and I appreciate that. I'd be willing to make that motion, but again, as the chair said, with bounds. If you're not able to reach the one-to-one, -one, I would, I would want us to oppose it and not and not give any more. That's why I asked if you should start with a lower number. I mean, it is kind of a negotiation. Um, you know, let's start with a with a 50% mitigation, but um, I, I would be opposed to supporting anything less than what you have presented as the amendments that you're seeking. Okay, do you, do you need a formal uh, vote for the vote? It wouldn't hurt. <laughs> I would like a vote, yes. I, I would support uh, Commissioner Presley's comment in addition to this, that, um, that, that that's one measure of the boundary that we may flip over to the side of opposing if it comes up. And that may help me. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so we will turn this into a motion. Yeah. yeah um, I'm happy to turn it into a motion. I move that we approve and, and provide the authority as given uh, to move forward with the sought amendments and that if they are unable to achieve those, that we support complete uh, opposition to this bill. <laughs> it sounds right to me, though. Uh, it sounds right. Yeah, it's taken. OK, all those in favor say can, aye. Can I just offer oh, one from nope. the amendment, aye. which is, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> let's mention that one-to-one -one ratio is our floor. I OK, that, that that's great. Direction. I accept that addition. OK. Okay, I second that addition. Okay. <laughs> All those in favor say aye. 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 Okay, you have your, your authorities. Thank you very much. And thank you for a thorough report here. All right. Um, we have an interesting item. Um, uh, typically, the, the vice chair is selected by the planning board. When we were all appointed, the council appointed the vice chair, appointed Amy Presley vice chair. 
and she served well in that capacity. However, she'll be leaving the board, and we need to have a replacement. And here is my thoughts on this matter. <laughs> We're about to have three new uh, board members who will be here for one day on the 9th, or maybe, we think. Uh, and uh, I think it's better for them to select a vice chair out of the full permanent membership rather than having them select a, a member who will stay on uh, while two other people come on. So my, my recommendation, and I'm looking for a motion, is to uh, uh, nominate and have uh, 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 Vice Chair Pinero uh, be, be our Vice Chair, Commissioner Pinero to be our Vice Chair. And I'll entertain that motion. Mr. Chair, I gladly move that uh, Commissioner Robert Pinero should be, um, succeed Amy Presley after this meeting as Vice Chair. A second. Thank you. I accept, I guess. <laughs> I don't have a <laughs> person vote. I don't have a voice or a vote on this issue. All those in favor say aye. But anyway. Aye. Uh, aye. Okay, thank you. That, that clears up something. And, and now I have to clear up uh, something else. Uh, uh, I would like a motion to delegate uh, authority for me to approve the minutes for today's meeting, uh, because otherwise, again, the, uh, the new board would have to review those minutes, and we're going to save them a couple of hours here. So I'll entertain that motion to give me authority. So moved, Mr. Chair. So second. Second. All those in favor say aye. 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 I'm sure they'll thank us uh, someday. Uh, we have one other addition to the uh, to our agenda. There's a a corrected resolution for uh, Chalberton uh, Solar Santa Rosa Site Plan 8-2022-02-10. Uh, and these were some minor corrections that are, are still within uh, the, uh, the approval that we gave. Um, uh, I would like uh, a motion to approve the corrected minutes. Mr. Chair, I, I move that we approve the corrected minutes for site plan 820. I'm sorry, resolution. Yes, oh, for site plan 820-220-210. And I say good. All those in favor say aye. 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 Okay. aye. All right, we're good at correcting resolutions. This is very exciting. We, we have uh, uh, two uh, subdivision record plats. One, uh, 2 Glenmar Park, that's uh, for one lot. The other is a subdivision plot, 2 2023 Gaither Edition, and again, that's for one lot. Uh, I'll seek a motion to approve. Mr. Chairman, I move that we approve um, subdivision plat number 22023030030 for Glenmar Park. Do you want to do them yeah, both at the same time? Both. Okay. And subdivision plat number 22023040 for Gaithers addition to Mount Zion. And I second it, Mr. Chairman. Okay. All those in favor say aye. 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 Okay. 
There we have it. Okay. We don't have any extensions. We have a roundtable discussion by the Parks Department, who's coming up shortly. Are we ready? Are we ready? Yes. We're still in the same session, so uh, I okay. think we can go Okay. Well, ahead. good morning. Uh, Mike Riley, Director of the Parks Department, here with my uh, biweekly Parks Director's Report. I want to start uh, thanking um, Commissioner Presley, Commissioner Branson, and Commissioner Hill for your service on the Planning Board. You've been extremely supportive of the Parks Department and every item I've brought before you, particularly our budget. So I just want to thank you uh, very very much for serving on the Planning Board and wish you well in your, your future uh, endeavors. And I, next I want to introduce a new staff person in my office. I filled my Chief of Staff position. If Dominique Harlow will wave her hand out there. Uh, Dominique just joined us, but she is not new uh, to the commission. She's been with us almost 10 years. She served in the uh, ITI division for a while, and I got to know Dominique uh, when the uh, pandemic hit, and we uh, had to switch immediately from in-person to online services, and she was a mastermind in assisting the organization and the planning board to uh, do that successfully in a matter of weeks. And she's held multiple positions in the uh, department, but I'm thrilled to have her uh, in my office uh, as a compliment to uh, Sandra, who can also wave her hand. So we have a small and mighty administrative staff in the director's office, but they help uh, Mitty and uh, Gary Burnett and uh, I stay on course and do a lot of uh, different uh, work for us. So please welcome Dominique. And Welcome. I do have a few slides uh, today, if we could get those up on the screen. Get my presentation going. <clears throat> there we go. So I'm not endorsing Twitter. I know there's a controversy about that platform, but as of today, the Parks Department still does use it as a very powerful tool uh, to communicate. I use it to um, express important things that are going on in the parks. And I'm thrilled to announce uh, that in February, we found out we were successfully awarded a $7.5 Safe Streets and Roads for All grant. Uh, this is going to go a long way to help us meet our Vision Zero goals. Uh, a lot of people don't understand the uh, magnitude of the park's trail system, but we have, uh, in addition to nine miles of public roads that we manage, uh, we have 230 miles of shared-use pathways and hard surface trails with more than uh, 200 trail crossings of public roadways in the county. Uh, unfortunately, we have had accidents and fatalities over the decades at certain locations. So there is work to be done. Uh, some of the work we will do with this money is developing safe trail connections to neighborhoods, 
providing safe crossings for people walking, biking, and driving through intersections, creating separated spaces for all users of transportation network in dense multimodal areas, and developing a permanent program of low volume streets into neighborhood uh, greenways. So we're really excited about this. We did not, this was one that we, uh, we took a shot at. We weren't particularly optimistic, but we're very, very thrilled to uh, get this grant and we'll make great use of that money. Uh, you're very familiar with the Bethesda Market Project. We talked to you quite a bit about this, uh, this partnership uh, in uh, downtown Bethesda, adjacent to the existing Farm Women's Market, where a private developer will be turning uh, parking lots into uh, mixed-use development, uh, restoring the Farm Women's Market, and then also uh, building two parks. Uh, on uh, lot 24 and lot 10. We're very excited to get to the stage where we're going to be engaging the public about what those parks will uh, look like. Uh, this is the beginning where we'll go, we'll go to the public with some concepts and ideas, seek their input and advice on what they like. And you can see we have two dates set uh, for public meetings. Uh, one at uh, the Lawton uh, Recreation Center on March 15th, and then one at Bethesda Elementary School on March 16th, and we fully expect to have a robust engagement and a lot of participation during those meetings. Uh, we have an annual event put on by Brookside Gardens called Greenscapes. Uh, you can see the theme here down in the text. It was held February 17th. I have the pleasure of kicking it off. Every year uh, when I uh, signed on, we had 800 uh, participants online. So it's very, very well attended. Uh, at the onset of the pandemic, they moved it from a virtual, uh, excuse me, from an in-person conference. It used to be held at different venues, but primarily the Silver Spring Civic Building, which meant there was a capacity of about 300 since we've gone online. Uh, that's uh, almost tripled. Uh, and then next year, they plan to have it uh, as a hybrid event where there will be a primary online event, but then there will also be hands-on work sessions. So very impressed with Brookside Gardens for this extremely successful uh, annual program. And then lastly, uh, my last slide here, uh, we have a new bug coming. Uh, we had the emerald ash borer years ago that we had to come talk to the board about. That was a little bit more devastating of an issue because we had to go seek funding to uh, take down all these dead or dying ash trees that could have proposed hazards to uh, park users. Uh, this pest is on the way, but it uh, should not be as destructive to the park system. Uh, there are, uh, uh, it likes uh, particular uh, plants. Uh, unfortunately, one of them is grapevines, so people who run vineyards in Montgomery County are not going to be very uh, happy about the arrival of this bug. Uh, it has a favorite tree called the Tree of Heaven, which is an invasive tree in our parks, so we're happy if it chomps down and kills Tree of Heaven, but unfortunately, it also has some other uh, native uh, plants and trees that it does like to uh, munch on. So we just had a briefing from uh, Department of Natural Resources at the state. Uh, their uh, entomologist, their expert, who's kind of leading the state's charge, came down and briefed us. And our role in this will be a lot of monitoring, education, and reevaluating if there's anything in particular we need to do to uh, protect the the park system. It's a uh, 
vary as you can see at the bottom left there that's the adult it's a very you're, nobody's going to miss it i imagine we're going to when you see more of these things out there be getting a lot of calls about these bugs and we'll be prepared to educate the public on uh, what they can do or what they shouldn't do and uh, generally though to people they're harmless people who don't like bugs don't like a lot of bugs around are probably going to freak out but they're generally harmless uh, and I just have a few more things that are not on slides. Um, good news, you will recall we came to you several weeks ago about a county executive uh, reduction to our CIP. He had recommended that we cut out uh, $1.5 million, and we came to you with options, and you uh, supported a non-recommended reduction of $1.5 million in geo bonds to our legacy open space. Uh, program we went uh, to the planning housing and parks committee on Monday and I'm thrilled that the planning and housing and parks <coughs> committee said no we don't want the parks department to take this reduction let's go find it somewhere else so that was a, a victory and uh, it's it's just great even though the committee's name changed uh, that committee has been extremely supportive of the parks and the parks budget over the years and it looks like it's going to stay that way which is great news on the same day, switching over to the other budget, we had an audience with the county executive um, to defend our operating budget. I would say it was an uneventful meeting. We really didn't get any particular uh, feedback, but he will release his budget on March 15th, and we'll know uh, the degree that there's a gap between what he uh, supports and what we asked for. Uh, then their next major step, there will be public hearings at the council in April, and uh, just like last year, we will make sure people who uh, advocate for the parks and benefit from the parks are heard at those meetings. Uh, then we'll switch to uh, committee meetings with uh, planning, housing, and parks in early April, and then the whole thing will wrap up in the early May with uh, reconciliation and adoption of the budget. So. I'll be very focused on this, as I'm sure the chair will. That's one of my primary aspects of my job, is to advocate for the resources the Parks Department uh, needs to perform its functions. And I'm optimistic at the end, uh, just like recent years, will come out uh, OK or, or, or hopefully good. Uh, this coming Tuesday, we have the semi-annual report at the uh, County Council in the afternoon where we'll be telling them about the highlights of our work program. You approved the outline and topics a few weeks ago, and we'll be showing them the slides. Uh, and then lastly, uh, we have just um, put on our website our very exciting uh, slate of park events for the spring. There's events every weekend. No one who lives in Montgomery County has any right to be bored and say they have nothing to do because we have a lot of fun, diverse uh, interests uh, type of events uh, throughout the week and on the weekends coming up. That's it for me today. I'd be happy to take any questions. I just want to say at uh, the semi-annual report on the 7th, which will be around 2 o'clock, 2.15, uh, the board is invited to attend. Uh, the council would like to say thank you to the board members. So uh, if you can make it, please, please do so. Uh, thank you for the report. I was very happy that the, uh, the PHP committee uh, uh, did not go forward with uh, non-recommended cuts. That was kind of exciting. Uh, at least for me, I get so little excitement otherwise. <laughs>
Anybody else? No. Oh. Just a, a quick, I, I see that picture of the adult infestation in Pennsylvania. It looks pretty scary. Um, and I'm not saying that it's going to happen here. Obviously, you know, hopefully it won't happen. But in case it does happen, first, when will it happen? Is that a kind of a, a, an insect that comes during the summer or spring, fall? Number one. Number two, do we need to um, do some kind of spraying uh, insecticide of some sort? I mean, what what are they doing in Pennsylvania that you know of? That uh, you know, I'm, I I think I, I don't want to guess. I did get a briefing. I what I understood is they are here, but the likely time to begin seeing the infestation would be this fall. This fall, okay. they they molt. I don't know if that's the right yeah. word, but the bug, like four or five times, evolves. Mm. And it, 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 my understanding is that's happening now and that the sightings will likely start to occur this fall, but we just don't know the volume. We don't know the degree. It varies by locality. And on spray, any type of uh, control, at this point, uh, the Parks Department does not plan to do any massive type of control, mm -hmm. definitely not pesticides. Yep. Uh, there are... We'll be doing some education about what homeowners can do. There's, uh, you know, various kits that can be bought online that capture the bugs on your trees and kill them. Uh, DNR's uh, campaign is pretty lethal. It's basically to say, folks, if you see one, stomp on it. Okay. <laughs> they're, they're, that's their slogan. It's, it's really, they're going to have right. billboards that have the word stomp well, on it's, it's good education for the community <laughs> to begin with. I'm sure that kids and teenagers will have fun yeah. with that, doing their civic duty. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you for your report. We appreciate all your work. Thank you. We, we appreciate all the... Uh, Parks Department's work and, and welcome to uh, your new position in the planning department, in the Parks Department. Thank you.
Good morning. This is uh, March 2nd, 2023 Planning Board session. We're on item five, uh, Nobi Market, formerly North Bethesda Market One, Site Plan Amendment 8, uh, 2006-0171. It's a public hearing for which we have no speakers. I'll turn it over to uh, um, staff first and then we'll hear from the applicant. Uh, thank you. Good morning, commissioners. For the record, my name is Emily Tettelbaum with the Mid-County Division, here to <clears throat> present to you the Nobi Market Site Plan Amendment number 8-2006-017-I. Staff recommends approval of this site plan amendment, which will allow the applicant to reposition this development to respond to the decreasing demand for brick-and-mortar retail particularly second floor retail space. This amendment proposes to convert existing retail and unused building space into 16 additional dwelling units, including two MPDUs very close to an existing metro station. Um, this slide shows some photographs of the existing um, development. This is the existing open space area in the middle of the development. This is the high-rise building right along Rockville Pike and uh, the entrance to the Whole Foods Market. So the development is uh, at the corner of Rockville Pike and Executive Boulevard. You can see it here in red. It's currently zoned CR, um, but the project was originally approved under the TSM zone. And this is within the White Flint sector plan area. The area surrounding the property contains both residential and commercial uses, and <clears throat> it's directly across the street from the former location of the White Flint Mall. So the site is just under six acres. Um, it's fully constructed with three buildings um, that currently contain 424 residential units and approximately 194,941 square feet of commercial development. Um, building A right here is the high-rise building uh, that contains residential and retail development, and it's 24 stories tall, one of the tallest buildings in the county. Um, building B is a low-rise building um, containing retail, and it's two and three stories tall. And building C, which is right here, is a mid-rise building that contains retail and residential development, and it's uh, seven stories tall. So this property was originally rezoned from TSM uh, to, sorry, to the TSM zone in 2005. This part of the project history was actually not included in the staff report, but it's helpful for you to be aware of um, some binding elements that were associated with the rezoning, requiring a minimum of 130,000 square feet of commercial um, that has to uh, be present on the property, and e that each building must have ground floor um, commercial uses. Um, in 2006, uh, preliminary and site plan were approved for this property, allowing up to 440 units and 223,000 square feet of commercial development. Um, subsequent amendments decreased the number of dwelling units and the amount of commercial development on the property. 
So the current proposal um, includes changes to existing buildings B and C. There are no changes in building A, and the majority of the changes to building C and B are internal. Um, there are no changes to building footprints, open space, um, or, or any, uh, any exterior features of the property. Um, except for the southern facade of building B here. So the applicant proposes to convert the second floor retail space, which is shown in this photo. Um, this is building B here that's right along uh, Rockville Pike. Uh, they propose to convert this space from second floor retail into um, 14 residential units. Um, you can see here that uh, part of the building has very high ceilings, and so uh, the applicant plans to build loft space in that area. And to do that, they are adding um, 3,500 square feet of residential square footage to the project. Um, on the southern side of the building, which is right here along uh, the service road, uh, windows will be punched through on the second floor facade to allow light into these units because currently there are no windows along that facade. Um, and the applicant also requests approval of a potential rooftop amenity on building B um, that will be phased according to market conditions. In building C, which is right here, there is an existing um, approved but unbuilt residential amenity space. It was originally proved, approved or uh, contemplated as a package room but never built out as a package room because that was located elsewhere on the property. Um, so the applicant plans to convert this 2,022 square feet of approved but unbuilt residential space into two residential dwelling units. Um, Staff has worked with the applicant to make sure that the on-site amenities are sufficient to um, accommodate the additional residential units according to the recreation guidelines. Um, so there are a few clarifications to the uh, development standards table. Uh, so altogether, the applicant, the, or the project will have 440 dwelling units and 175,591 square feet of commercial density, which includes 59,900 square feet of cellar space that does not count towards the density for calculation purposes when calculating the total density, it's, it's uh, slightly confusing. So we've attempted to make it clearer here by adding an additional footnote and some additional language to the footnote to clarify um, why the commercial density in the chart does not include the 59,900 square feet of cellar space. Um, happy to answer questions about that if you have any. Um, and then the total density was just in the wrong cell here, so I moved it down to the total density with the MPDU bonus um, at, at 2.4 FAR. Um, so that was just a, an error on my part. And then the uh, chart also didn't have the total density for the proposed amendment, so that was added as well. And then one typo in the staff report I wanted to make you aware of on page seven, uh, 
The report references existing floor to ceiling heights in the northwestern corner of the second floor of building B. It should be the northeastern corner of building B. And we are proposing additional conditions that were not included in the staff report related to noise in, inside the residential units. Now, noise was addressed with the original site plan um, back in 2006, but just so they don't get overlooked, we're recommending to add these conditions to ensure that the interior residential noise does not exceed 45 decibels. Um, the applicant has satisfied all required noticing and signage requirements, and staff has not received any correspondence about this amendment. And staff recommends approval of site plan amendment number 82006017I uh, with the additional conditions that uh, I've just shown you in this presentation. And I'm happy to answer any questions you have. I'm glad you're happy to answer questions. Um, uh, on the zoning limitation, it said a minimum 130,000 square feet of commercial. In your table, you have 115,000 square feet of commercial. Is that because you didn't include the basement space right. in that? Exactly. So this 115,691 square feet doesn't include the cellar space because it's not included in the calculation for density here. But so we've just added um, additional information to this footnote that says the actual amount of previously approved commercial density is 194,941 square feet, and then the actual amount of approved commercial development with this amendment is 175,591 square feet. Could you clarify what is the cellar space? I'm confused. I mean, the, sure. the chair here mentioned a basement, mm -hmm. but uh, right. it is, know, what is it? It's, it's space that's at least partially underground. And in this case, okay. I think it's a Whole Foods that's the cellar space. So while that area isn't counted towards density for the purposes of calculating density, because it doesn't really add to the building massing bulk. and bulk, um, the square footage of that space is used to calculate parking and other the, the types Whole of Foods requirements. The Whole is under building A? Is that it's what under it is? Building, building B? It's under building C. C. Right? Okay. C, yeah. It's right here. So this is the entrance that I showed you a picture of oh, before. Okay. All right. And I think you take an escalator down to actually get into the Whole Foods, if I recall correctly. So so our policy is not to include basements as part of the density, the square footage? Correct. correct. There's certain <clears throat> certain parameters, specific parameters that the space has to meet that I don't recall off the top of my head. And this was actually approved under the old zoning code, mm -hmm. the previous zoning code. And I'm not sure if that's changed, but I, I believe we still do not count seller space towards, and um, our attorney is, yeah. is shaking her head. We still do not count seller space towards density since it doesn't really add to the bulk and mass of the building. And Okay, thank the, you. Uh, cellar is more than 50% below grade versus a basement, which is partially below grade. Um, okay, you have a better that. memory than me. Thank uh, you, Chair <laughs> Zions. <laughs> don't, give, don't give me a laundry, a, uh, a shopping list, because I'll forget things on that. But, but cellar definitions I can remember. Commissioner Hill? Yeah, just a quick follow-up for staff on that, and that is just to understand, I've been in that Whole Foods, and I don't remember that customers can enter the cellar space. So is it storage? Is it? 
No, it's the whole store. Because it's partially below grade, you take an, you take an elevator stairs to go down into it. Hmm. I remember walking I, in off the street and just walking in. On and one side. There's probably another entrance, maybe. It could be the slope. Wood Glen is flush. Yeah. Okay. It's all based on the grading of the site, and you okay. do go in, and then there's a little step down, and that's how you meet the test. Uh, Steve Robbins with our Trillium Brewer. I'm sorry. You didn't see any windows, did you, there? Because they would have been... I was in there recently, <laughs> and I really don't remember going under, having any feeling of going underground in the part of the store that customers could be in. But um, I'll take the testimony as evidence of And it. staff is satisfied that it doesn't count as density, but is counts yeah, as it's a commercial usable space. space. Uh, Commissioner Branson. Yeah, um, I see on the picture here that you have some outside space so I'm, I'm wondering about you know the the green space requirements um, and I'm also curious about the um, uh, rooftop uh, uh, plans for the future that, that you mentioned and whether you know that's gonna um, enter Rupt, intervene, or um, somehow keep um, any potential green roof or other kinds of um, um, environmental uh, considerations that that could have been a part of this. Well, I, I'll let the applicant team speak to the uh, rooftop amenity, but in terms of the green space, the the requirement has already been satisfied as part of the project, and, and there are no changes proposed with this amendment to the open space or green space. But it, so it's, it's really open space. It's not green space. I mean, what I'm looking at on this picture is uh, all pretty well paved in. I mean... This part is, but there are other parts um, that include pretty lush plantings and okay. other portions of this project. You can see some trees right on the border here. Okay. And, and for all, for everything you're saying about the standards, it's meeting the standards of the 2014 code. Right. including the recreation standards of the 2014 code. Correct? So it's actually meeting the current recreation standards. We had them run an analysis using oh, okay. the current oh. recreation standards for 440 units. Okay. Excellent. And, Go ahead. And I, I wanted the applicants to talk about the, um, the um, potential uses for the um, top floor or whatever, the, the rooftop, excuse me, and whether that will you know, have any effect on, on maybe doing a green roof or, I mean, just curious as to what the considerations may be. Um, for the record, Elizabeth Rogers with Lurcherly and Brewer. Um, we can address that also in our remarks a little bit in uh, more detail. Um, but the, the potential green, I mean, the potential rooftop amenity is something that the applicant is kind of uh, building into this amendment for future flexibility. It's not something they intend to build now. Um, this project is very amenity rich. There is a very large rooftop amenity on building C, which is the very large footprint building that contains the grocery store that will serve all of the residents on site. Um, there are some structural considerations that we really need to take into consideration as we move forward with the design to make sure that a rooftop amenity would be feasible on building B, which is partly why it's potential at this point. Um, and those similar structural constraints are 
what typically prevent you from doing a green roof on a, a building of this construction type, a low-rise building like this, typically can't support the weight that the green roof would, would require. Okay, thank you. Would the applicant like to say something more, or, or are you satisfied with the staff report? Um, I'll just make a few very brief remarks. Um, Emily, as always, has done a great job, so I'll, I'll keep my uh, remarks brief. Um, just again, for the record, Elizabeth Rogers with Lurch, Early, and Brewer with me here today in the auditorium is my colleague, Steve Robbins. And we do have virtually joining us um, Maura Billifer with CBRE Investment Management on behalf of the applicant. And Tim Geitz, our architect, is also online uh, to answer any questions that the board may have. Um, I'm sure you're all very familiar with the site, given the recognizable tower. And Emily's done a great job kind of describing it. Just to reiterate for the record, um, this is a mixed-use project containing both retail and residential uses. A significant amount of that retail is in the seller space just based on the grade of the site. Um, that will remain unchanged, as it's always been since the original approval. As Emily mentioned, the needs of brick and mortar have significantly changed since we originally had this project approved in 2006. Um, it's no surprise to anyone here that e-commerce has impacted kind of the changing retail landscape. Obviously, the lasting impacts from the COVID-19 pandemic have further exacerbated some of those challenges. Um, and a particular challenge is leasing second-story retail space. That's something that this project in particular has had to grapple with over the years. Um, and that's primarily what brings us here today. Uh, that building B, which is in the south um, east corner of the property, contains a very large retail tenant that occupies the entire second level of building B and a um, large portion of the first level. They have indicated they will not be releasing that space. They're moving their headquarters, that space elsewhere to Virginia, I believe. Um, and that is what is driving the need to convert the second story into additional residential dwelling units. The first floor will remain as retail with the exception of a corridor that's needed to obviously access the residential units above. Um, as I mentioned before, um, this project is very amenity rich. Um, we have worked with staff and we'll make sure that it's documented in the certified site plan to show that we meet the recreation guidelines for residential amenities based on the 440 units that we're seeking approval of. Um, there's a fitness center, a game room, a conference center, a community room, a rooftop pool, various outdoor seating opportunities. This project really has a lot of amenities. Um, we are taking away the unbuilt uh, approximately 2,000 square foot residential amenity in Building C because those functional kind of more practical amenities have been accommodated elsewhere. But I did want to note for the record that in Building B with our interior renovations, we are adding an additional approximately 1,400 square foot residential amenity area that'll be on the loft level, and that's shown on the plans in the record. Um, collectively, just to note for the record, this amendment will um, provide the additional 16 units, and that actually generates two additional moderately priced dwelling units, which um, is a great benefit and, you know, moves the this project closer towards meeting some of the county's goals of increasing housing by 2030. Um, I think the last thing I would just note is that, as Emily mentioned, um, this is largely interior renovations. There's really no exterior renovations except for kind of punching through some windows to get more natural light. One of the benefits of converting um, this retail space is that it has a lot of glazing, so it gets a lot of natural light into most of the window, um, the units, except on the rear where it was a more service uh, back of house space. We're putting in windows to get more natural light in. Otherwise, no changes proposed to um, the existing site. 
So we, we are fine with the additional conditions that Emily has added today, and we agree with the findings in the staff report. Thank you. Any questions from commissioners? Commissioner Hill. Yes, uh, first question for staff, which is, was there a, a uh, mixed-use component to the prior approvals that gave intensification to the site that, um, I'll stop there for a moment. So I, I'm not sure if this answers your question, but with the original rezoning, um, there was a requirement for a minimum amount of commercial development to be retained on the site with uh, ground floor commercial as part of each building. Um, and it, the, the approval allowed some flexibility otherwise to uh, mix the commercial and residential square footage. Okay, and we've already talked that that number seems to be satisfied even though the, mm -hmm. how you measure it is yes. a um, question we'll just bring. So, so here's my concern. Um, this is a prime retail site, right? If, if you can't make good on the frontage of Rockville Pike, uh, we've got other issues we need to start addressing in terms of our mixed-use assumptions. And I'm very concerned here that this site, I think this is the third bite at the apple of reducing its mixed-use balance. And while making housing is a really important priority here, I think we've got two other priorities ahead of that, and one of those is the impact on the environment, of which changing our cityscape to be really, to truly be mixed-use is kind of our biggest uh, tool in doing that. You know, reducing car-centric orientation and less travel, meaning less pollutants in the air and that sort of thing. And the other is equity, which I don't think really is engaged here, but um, I just see us stepping away from that really important priority um, here. And I'm also a little concerned that we've got just the, the smaller numbers of, I didn't hear anything about increasing parking for new residents um, and reducing amenity space. Uh, I'm interested in, in whether we can require the amenity replacement mentioned here uh, to be required, not optional, because optional is something that's easily not done in the future. Um, I don't know how to do that in terms of the, giving the flexibility of what's the right time to do that. Uh, but those are my concerns. I, I don't know if you can address any of those. I'll say in terms of the parking, the original site plan approval was envisioned, or. It was, it was evaluated by staff and the planning board based on 440 units and 223,000 square feet of commercial development, development well above what, what is proposed here for the total development, and there's more than adequate parking included. Um, and I, I would argue that this, this re remains a mixed-use, a very strong mixed-use development, even with the changes proposed here. Okay. One, one last question. Uh, minor, more minor concern is I'm just also concerned about the appropriateness of housing in this particular location. Um, a couple angles, you've addressed the sound question because I think the noise and impact of people living atop a really busy road, and I'll, I'll mention that I can't think of very many places between Rockville and the Beltway, you know, really big significant part of Rockville Pike that has housing this close to the road. I can think of the Galvin, I can think of the Avanti building, which I think is mostly employment, I'm not quite sure down at Grosvenor maybe, but, and there's kind of good reason for that, right? It's not a pleasant place to, to be. And um, also the question of people living behind 
glass windows designed to be storefront display uh, strikes me as an issue and possible problem with privacy. And I, I'm not really big on the idea of having these large expanses of glass with, with lines behind them all the time, which I think could rise here. So I'm kind of wrestling with whether this is appropriate housing space. Maybe you can Could address I, that. Yeah. Um, to address a few, I guess I'll take the, the last one first, then I wanted to go back to a few of your other um, comments, provide some additional information. Um, in terms of the lighting, we actually view that as a, a big benefit for these units. Um, you know, a lot of the, the trend has been to have a lot more transparency into residential units, just given the health benefits of having that natural light in your living space. Um, these units will have, um, I think the architect called them mecho shades, or it's a particular kind of shade that allows for privacy, but allows filtered light to come in if, when they are closed, but then also gives the residents the ability to kind of control what portions of the windows are open versus, you know, screened for privacy purposes while still getting that natural light in. Um, so that's what we've done for the other portions of this project that have been previously commercial and converted into residential. All of that previous conversion was limited to second story retail space. New mixed use projects that are coming online don't provide second story retail space because with the changes I was mentioning in my testimony, that space is just really not viable. Um, and that's what this project's grappling with. Obviously, we're still maintaining, as Emily mentioned in her numbers, a significant amount of commercial space in this mixed use project that, that maintains that um, the overall intent that was originally approved by the board. And we think that this conversion into residential units actually further promotes the goal of a really active, vibrant um, project as compared to what we believe would just remain as vacant commercial space. Um, in terms of the amenity, I just wanted to clarify for the amenity replacement, the, the rooftop, there's no outdoor amenity space that's being impacted by this. So our potential rooftop amenity is really just an additional amenity that we would like to do in the future when the market supports it or if we find that the structure supports it, but it's not economically viable for the applicant to do right at the moment. Um, and in terms of interior amenity space, as I mentioned, we're converting that approximately 2,000 square foot of unbuilt amenity space in building C into units. But we are adding, it's about a total of, um, I think it's like 1,800, almost 1,900 square feet of amenity space in building B. When you take that loft level space I mentioned that was 1,400 square feet, there's another business center space that's 340 square feet, and then there's a little lobby um, kind of seating area that's another 140 square feet. So we are providing, even though this already has a ton of amenities within the overall project, a comparable replacement for the amenity space that we're <coughs> taking away in building C, which, which doesn't actually exist today. Um, I, I agree that it's it's been an approach to increase uh, glass for outside space, but I'm not aware that's happened within the pediments of buildings. Right when I when I walk around some buildings I can think of that have that it's it's in the upper stories where the privacy problem doesn't occur and often in the setback from from the pediment. Um, so I, I do see this as unusual to to take something that is not very far above street level and has hundreds of cars passing by it by the minute almost um, and and call that privacy. I, I, I that bothers me. I guess you could not expect uh, Commissioner Hill's application for a rental. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but be they as way, Commissioner Branson. Yeah. I, I just want to, I'm just trying to be clear. Um, uh, are there currently any 
residential units in, in this? Are there currently any residential units in, in this space? In the space. In the project. No, currently. Currently, before they, okay. And, and so when you finish, there'll be how many? 440. It'll be Same. a total of 400. Is it an even exchange? No, so the project was originally approved for 440 residential right. units. It then went through an amendment that decreased the units, so we've been slowly building back up to the total 440 that was originally approved. So with this amendment, we're seeking to capitalize on the 440 units that were originally approved for the project. But currently, there's 424 on site today. Okay, so um, the uh, am I to assume that they're occupied or unoccupied? Largely occupied. I don't know the exact occupancy rate, but the, the project is largely occupied. And, and so uh, what, um, w what will happen to those people? Uh, will they be given opportunities to, to be in the new building, or, or, or what, what happens? Just to be clear, the, the existing 424 units are not changing. They'll, they'll no, remain. All the residents in those units can stay in their units. There's no change there. They're just adding 16 additional units on top of the existing 424 units. Yeah, that's why I wanted to be clear about this. I wanted mm -hmm. to figure out if we were displacing anybody no, because it no, wasn't no, totally no, clear to me. No okay. No. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Let me ask a um, couple of questions. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I kind of agree with the staff and I agree with the applicant. In terms of, in 2006, we basically allowed 440 units and you're mm -hmm. asking 60 more units to bring it up to the 440. So, and I, you know, I agree with some of the things that Commissioner Hill has mentioned, but not with others. I see a big deficit of housing in the county. I mean, we're yes. experiencing that. And I'm all in favor of developing more housing. So um, the balance between retail, I mean, we know what happened during the pandemic. We know what's happened since then, market forces. I mean, who are we to predict that we need more retail or more commerce? Uh, this is just a trend of times. And, and we do need more housing. So I would be in favor of this. I am, I am a little bit concerned about the amenities in the sense that I want to ask the applicant and I guess the staff whether some of these amenities, because you're shifting some from building C to building B. No, is that, am I correct? Well, the, the, the one clarification I make is those amenities in building C don't actually exist. They were never built. They were approved recently when the leasing office was moved, but they yeah. were never actually built. So will these amenities be able to share, be shared by all the even even people in building A, I mean, we're talking about amenities, even though they're in different parts of the all, building? All of the amenities on site, including the pool, which is on building C, the fitness yeah. center, I think, is in building A. All of them are shared amongst all of the residents. Everyone has access to every single amenity, regardless of what building they live in. I see. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't have any more questions. I, I, I kind of like this. this Commissioner project. Presley does. <laughs> Commissioner Presley. I, actually, I, I, I'm prepared to make a motion. Oh, okay. Uh, I, 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 uh, I was there in the original approvals, and we used to debate uh, as to what would happen in the way distant future and whether we'd still need the mix of retail, and here we are, and we know what's going on. So I think this, these are um, great changes, and I understand uh, Commissioner Hill's concern about the, the view shed and everything. Uh, 
I like that kind of view, but I get, you know, people are going to have to get some good blinds. Um, yeah. So it, with all that said, I, I would like to move approval of site plan amendment for Nobi Market I, uh, site plan number A200601-7I. And I second that. With the conditions with, as outlined. Yeah. With the amended commissions yeah. by staff. Okay. Yes. Okay. And we and have I a second. second. And the red. Oh, we have a resolution as well because we're trying to do things all uh, today. That was right. in the packet. So uh, can we in, can we include those in the same motion? Yes. Yes. Okay. We're, then we're, I then I amend my motion. We're delegating the to include the, the site plan approval of the resolution and resolution. No, no the resolution was you had the resolution in the packet. Okay. And I second the amendment and the resolution. Okay, seeing no further discussion, all those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? Mr. Chair, I abstain. Um, the reason for that is because the 440 units are already approved, I don't think I have the legal authority to vote against this, but I don't support it. Okay, so noted. So it's uh, 401, but we, we thank the applicant. Do we need to pause?
Welcome back to the March 2nd, uh, 2023 session of the Planning Board. We are on item six, review of the County Executive FY23 capital budget and FY23 uh, to 28 CIP for schools. I'll turn it over to staff. Great, thank you, uh, Mr. Chair. Uh, for the record, Jason Sartori, Chief of Countywide Planning and Policy at the Planning Department. And so you'll recall last week we uh, presented to the board, uh, Steve Aldrich uh, came to you and talked about the transportation CIP and the county executive's recommendations with regard to that. And we had some comments that we sent along to the council. Um, you know, so this is a little different. Today we're here talking about the MCPS uh, C CIP. And you know, some people will question, well, why, why are we even talking about the, the school CIP here at the planning board? And uh, this is, in some ways, it's a little bit of a holdover from our old uh, days under the subdivision staging policy, which is now the growth and infrastructure policy, where we used to have uh, a moratorium. And the county council would really uh, look forward to hearing the comments from the planning board with regard to potential cuts to or delays to certain school construction projects that might have an impact on putting an area into a moratorium. And oftentimes, the council would, uh, you know, weigh that very heavily and choose to not delay projects or not uh, cancel projects that would put a service area in moratorium because they, they just didn't want that. And as a result, then there were other school projects that would get delayed. And oftentimes, those were projects where we didn't have enrollment burdens. We didn't have the risk of, uh, of a, a moratorium. But you still had, you know, in potentially deteriorating schools that needed to be updated. Uh, so it really became an equity issue in, in, in one of the reasons that we really pushed strongly to remove the moratorium. Um, so now, fast forward to under our new policy, uh, it's, it's a different equation. And the information that we send is not as uh, relevant from that perspective. However, we still like to transmit comments and concerns that we might have about potential delays in the uh, in school construction schedules that uh, based on what we may know about projects that are approved or uh, kind of development patterns we may be seeing enrollment projections that we may be expecting uh, or in enrollment increases that we may be expecting but the other thing is that we have been working for the past two years or so really closely with mcps to try to improve our collaborative efforts and um, we meet on a monthly basis with MCPS staff, and one of the things that we've been working on in those meetings is development of an, of an MOU between the, the commission and uh, MCPS about how we will incorporate each other more in earlier in our various planning processes. And so one element of that is in MCPS's uh, capital improvement program uh, pr process, their budgeting and their capital project process, uh, is for us to provide comments earlier in the process on potential site design issues and other things that we may see that we want them to be aware of or be thinking about early in their planning process before they come to us for mandatory referral, before it's too late, and potentially where they might have a budget impact, you know, to access the site from one road instead of a different road, things like that, that uh, we, we hope by continuously putting this information out there publicly and by you know being very transparent with the comments and the concerns that we have early on uh, and communicating those to MCPS but also through this forum communicating them to the to the council at some point maybe someone will say 
have you considered these comments from the planning, uh, from the planning board? Do they have any budget implications that we need to be aware of? So really, this is just another opportunity for us to kind of contribute to that process, provide these comments. These are not comments that, <clears throat> here comes the frog again. Um, these are not comments that are new to MCPS. We've been, again, as part of this effort to, to collaborate earlier in each of our processes, we've been communicating a lot of these. So with that, I just want to kind of give you the little bit of background on, on where all of this comes from. I'm going to pass it off to Ms. Heisu Beck, uh, and she will walk you through the, uh, the, the CIP. All right. Thanks, Jason. Um, for the record, Ms. Um, Heisu Beck from Countywide Planning and Policy. So here's the order of what today's pre presentation will cover. First, um, we'll do an overview of MCPS's FY23 <clears throat> through 28 CIP am amendment and a summary of individual school projects that are included in the CIP. Then we'll go over the comments and feedback from planning staff on a few individual school projects that may have budgetary implications, as Jason just um, noted. And then we'll conclude with next steps, including a staff recommendation um, to transmit um, comments to the council. So before we go through through these, um, one big difference of the school's CIP from transportation or other parts of the CIP that's important to know is that the list of projects and their priorities in the CIP each year are mainly determined by MCPS through the Board of Ed's annual request. The county executive typically doesn't make decisions on individual line items, but recommends a funding schedule for each fiscal year that MCPS will try to adhere to. That being said, for the current FY23 to 28 CIP that's being considered for amendments, um, the County Council approved a six-year total of $1.77 billion last year. The Board of Ed is now requesting an amendment to increase that by $165.7 million, which is 9.4% increase. In response, the county executive did increase the six-year total recommendation to $1.87 billion, but that still falls short of the Board of Ed's request by $61.6 million. To look at this year by year, this graph shows a visual comparison of the discrepancy between the three parts during the six-year CIP cycle. The gray bars here indicate what was adopted by the council last year. Now these red bars are the Board of Ed's requested amendments. The jump in the early years, especially between FY24 through 26, is quite significant as you can see. These dark blue bars are where the county executive's recommendation stands in comparison. It falls short of the Board of Ed's request in those early years, despite a recommended increase from what was adopted. These early year expenditures are pretty important for the individual school projects because they cover most of the construction funds, many of which have already broken ground and shouldn't be delayed for very obvious reasons. So here's a full list of all the individual school projects that are included in the adopted FY23 through 28 CIP. Some of them have already been completed. The schools highlighted in purple are the projects that the Board of Ed is requesting amendments for. 
These include Woodward High School, Joanne Lullock Elementary School, Northwood High School, Poolsville High School, Crown High School, Silver Spring International Middle School, Greencastle Elementary School, and Burtonsville Elementary School. Here's a little more detail on what the Board of Edge Amendment request for those schools entail. It's a $91 million in construction cost increases for seven of the already approved projects. Among those, Woodward, Northwood, and Crown High Schools are critical in providing capacity relief to many other high schools throughout the county. Also, a ch there's a change of project scope for Burtonsville Elementary School. The adopted CIP currently has a classroom addition approved for Burtonsville, but MCPS is seeking to relocate this school to a new site and build a new facility for them there. After the staff report was posted um, last Thursday, the Board of Ed discussed MCPS's non-recommended reductions during their business meeting. So this was not put in the staff report, but I, I'll brief um, over it right now. Um, just for your reference, non-recommended reductions are a list of projects that the council usually requests MCPS to provide in order to bring their expenditures and the Board of Ed's request to the level of funding recommended by the county executive. This year's non-recommended reductions include a two-year delay to the Highland View Elementary School addition and the major capital project um, at Damascus High School. The Highland View Elementary School, unfortunately, has been persistently overcrowded for as long as our data goes back, about two decades, if not longer. But it's such a small school that the projected seat deficit level, even with the delay, doesn't meet our threshold for a UPP tier placement, which is 85, a seat deficit of 85 seats for elementary schools. Damascus High School, on the other hand, already has surplus capacity that MCPS is um, building an increase for to offload other high schools in the area. So a delay won't change its new UPP status either. It will, however, most likely delay the um, relief of overcrowding in other high schools around the upcounty area, which, which will most likely include Clarksburg High School. I'm sorry, can I, I just, I'm trying to be, uh, I'm trying to understand. So you're saying that Damascus, the, um, the uh, lapse, if you will, of, of Damascus project may cause a ripple effect. Is that a, a sort of a domino effect in, in, is that what, is that what you're, you're getting at here? Um, it depends on what you mean by domino effect. The increased capacity that is being, or that was approved at Damascus High School, um, MCPS hasn't made an official statement regarding it, but has mentioned in multiple cases that will most likely be used to relieve the overcrowding at, at Clarksburg Other High School. Okay. And then the way MCPS has started approaching these, they might do a more comprehensive boundary um, study for multiple other area high schools. Um, later on, I will show what's going on with the Northwood, Woodward um, high school capacity relief plans that MCPS is, is suggesting. So um, it's hard to say it will be a ripple effect, but it will be a delay of that actual relief 
that okay. MCPS is planning to do in the future. And could you tell me the, um, you said Highland View has been overcrowded for as long as y'all have kept records. So, so what is what is the nature of that? Has it always been ten percent, twenty percent, whatever? I mean, is there is there something you know consistent and persistent here? So the the one interesting thing is um, by utilization rate, which is uh, um, which is enrollment divided by capacity, the rate is has been around one hundred twenty percent going all the way back to two thousand. Seven at least, but so that utilization rate is pretty alarming. But for our utilization premium payment standards, we also look at the actual seat deficits because the number of seats for a classroom addition is the same no matter what the existing size of the school is. So we set that number as 85 seats for elementary schools, and because of Highland View Elementary School's existing capacity and the enrollment, even though it's over the capacity level, is so small. The enrollment is around 300-something, <clears throat> maybe closer to <clears throat> excuse me, 400. The capacity itself is less than 300. So although the utilization rates are telling us it's been over around 120% for, for a long time, the actual seat deficit has not been as large as some other elementary schools are experiencing. So it's two different ways to think about it. The numbers show one thing this way, another thing that way. So the overall non-recommended reduction scenario here will close the discrepancy between the BOE's request and the CE's recommendation to around two to three million dollars for those early years where we were seeing a much higher discrepancy. The Council's Education and Committee, <laughs> Education and Culture Committee, should be discussing this a couple weeks later. So here's a map showing all the individual school capital projects that are included in this CIP. It's overlaid on top of our equity focus areas, which might be hard to tell, but they're shaded in pink on the map. And our current master plan effort areas, which are shown in blue. Some of the schools, well, many of the schools are not, are close to these shaded areas, but not actually within the areas. But it's important to understand that the school location might be outside of the area, but a lot of times the school service areas will capture these equity focus areas or master plan areas. So we are seeing a good placement of MCPS capital funds in terms of equity and what we're trying to do. So in now- your, In your opinion, I, I'm, I mean, we don't have the moratorium anymore and I'm trying to understand how do uh, the Board of Education makes decision, uh, make decisions? Are they really looking at the conditions of the school when they recommend it for the CIP? Or is there, are they taking us into consideration in terms of our planning or higher, you know, we, we keep approving projects and that is going to uh, increase the number of students. Uh, so we give them some input uh, in terms of what schools we think 
you know, are, are going to have in the future capacity issues. Um, but I'm not really sure how, what, what they take into consideration, whether they, like, like you mentioned, you know, we make a recommendation to them, but they, they make decisions based on what? I mean, is it, is it just on their physical, on their plan? The, the school, you know, is like needs renovation or is it more, you know, in terms of the future, what they see as how they deal with capacity? I, I'm wondering whether, you know, they're, they're just following up, you know, development or whether they plan, they do any kind of development planning. So in the recent um, CIP schedules that MCPS has been um, putting forward, we are seeing both efforts. Okay. So there are um, a lot of classroom addition projects which will address the enrollment um, going over capacity and which addresses our master plan efforts okay. potentially impacting um, schools. Um, and we usually do um, work with MCPS regarding our master plan efforts. Um, so um, whenever they consider it, I guess, necessary, it will show up in their projections that we are using in our annual school tests. Um, at the same time, their um, MCPS um, has been um, addressing a lot of um, schools with aging infrastructure, mm -hmm. and they are um, building what they're calling major capital projects which um, Damascus High School, um, for example, is um, one that is supposed to receive, um, although it's getting delayed, those usually um, replace or um, sometimes fully replace or sometimes um, upgrade um, existing infrastructure. Um, there, there is a, what's called a key facilities indicator that MCPS used the contractor to put together to sort of I don't know if ranking is the right word, but sort of figure out which schools probably are in more need to um, to get to update their infrastructure. So they are following that too. Um, but a lot of times, when they are doing a major capital project like Damas again, like Damascus High School, they will increase capacity. So it's sort of chasing two rabbits at the same time. So they will. Um, upgrade the facility, but increase the capacity too, since they're building there anyway. And more and more, we're probably going to be seeing boundary studies to sort of figure out how to address, redistribute students among these different capital projects. Okay, thank you. Okay. So now um, we'll go through the planning um, staff comments on just a few of um, these projects. So most of the comments and feedback that were transmitted last year still hold because there weren't any new individual school projects added. Um, the ones that are still relevant are included in the attachment to the staff report in attachment two, and we'll be requesting to transmit all those, um, the, whole, the full set of um, comments to the council again this year. The one change of scope to Burtonsville Elementary School that um, I had mentioned earlier was highly anticipated and fully supported by planning staff. As you can see in these two pictures, the existing site on the left side is located behind an auto-dominant retail shopping strip and not conducive to walking or biking from any residential areas. The proposed site, on the other hand, on the right side, is immediately adjacent to and walkable and bikeable from residential neighborhoods. 
It was actually dedicated to MCPS as a result of a recommendation from our 1997 Fairland Master Plan. The planning staff's comments relates to the site design at this new location. Consistent to our general school site design guidelines, the recommendation is to place the building along the street edge of Saddle Creek Drive, put parking to the side or rear of that building, and include elements that will encourage pedestrian bike access. Isn't this new site near a, um, a park? Isn't there? Uh, okay. Yes, the green right the green park, part right. shown in the okay. in the picture is um, it's it says McNew Conservation Park. Yeah. So okay. it yeah on one side is the park, on the other side is residential. Um, do do we know what will happen to the old site if this happens? Will it be surplus? Will Montgomery County hold on to it? And the reason I ask is it seems kind of a relatively big and important site for the town center of Burtonsville. That is a very good question. At this moment, we don't know the official um, stance from MCPS. It has been mentioned in one of their Board of Ed's meetings through their staff that they might need to consider as an early education center, which probably puts an additional burden for capacity on um, MCPS when they're gonna be providing it countywide. So, but that was, that was not an official statement in any of the CIPs, so we'll have to see where this goes. Okay, thank you. How about the proposed site? Who, um, I mean, I imagine that MCPS acquired the property. Do you know from whom? It was dedicated. It was dedicated by it the county? dedicated by the, um, from what I believe, it was called the golf course community in the 1997 okay. Fairland Master Plan. I believe it is the site plan, the developers who had the site planned for the um, residential for areas the that we're seeing right next to the school. Okay, thank you. So another area that planning is trying to provide input is the planned capacity of Woodward, Northwood, and Crown High Schools. They were all initially planned for 2,700 seats each, but the capacities for all three were reduced in the adopted CIP last year. This may partially be because of um, budget constraints, and last year the projections um, indicated that it was still okay to reduce the capacity. So Woodward and Northwood High Schools are intended to relieve the overutilization at Down County Consortium High Schools and Walter Johnson High School. MCPS is now proposing to include Bethesda Chevy Chase High School and Whitman in that boundary study scope as well. These two additional high schools will bring more surplus capacity to the table during the boundary study but a preliminary FY24 school test run um, that I've explained to an RGIP briefing weeks ago, um, this is shown in this table, and it shows that um, at the furthest right column, there won't be that many surplus seats left in these high schools if enrollment were to grow even further after this. All the high schools have a few dozen seats maybe more than a few dozen seats, but not that many seats left to accommodate further enrollment growth. Is it, is it fair to characterize this as budget constraints have affected what we can spend on those schools in the near term and we should expect a rolling uh, capacity increase to accommodate growth that I think we can predict? 
Uh, yeah, so you know, one of the things that MCPS has said is, you know, when they reduced that, that they are the, the reduction in the size of these schools was in, in, uh, specifically to to cut the construction costs or to to mitigate the the construction costs are still increasing even with these reduced numbers. So, yeah, this is going to have an impact if they have to continually, you know, cut the size of planned projects just because of the increased cost of construction that's going to have a problem from a, you know, our ability to be able to accommodate all of the students that we anticipate. And, and one thing I want to just make sure is very clear here, those last two columns that, that FY24 AST, AST is annual school test modification. This is, as uh, Ms. Beck was saying, uh, this is our calculation of how we do our annual school test. We assume that all the schools that are going to be included in the boundary analysis will be, um, that all of the students will be distributed so that they all have an even utilization. That is not necessarily how MCPS will do this. They go through a pretty rigorous boundary study where they, you know, look at a lot of other factors. We were just, we just balance utilization. Uh, so those numbers are not expected. Those are certainly not MCPS's numbers. Those are just our assumptions uh, put here to, that show that at these capacities that they are now planning to build, Northwood and Woodward, uh, if you were to balance the, all of that, uh, all of this, this, the, the student enrollment across all of these high schools, they would all have about, you know, between 48 and 63 seats available. And that doesn't leave much room for these areas to grow, and the, as you know, this is all down county. This is all where we are focusing a lot of our growth in Bethesda, Silver Spring, in, in, in everywhere in between there. So, and I'll just say this out loud because it's the aggravation of school advocates at the district level, which is that averaging, uh, as we, as you just mentioned, now at an even larger scope, um, is always a, a sore topic because you know the school district is not particularly responsive to moving boundaries. And the kids that end up going to these schools that are averaged as okay don't experience it as okay. And um, I, that's something in the long term that I think the county needs to wrestle with. But that's more of a, a, a school system question about boundary flexibility, I think, than a planning question. Yeah, and I would add that, you know, what you see here, the fact that MCPS has expanded this, the scope of this boundary study to include um, BCC High School and Walt Whitman High School is an indication of things to come. I think uh, MCPS is more willing to have more uh, broader discussions around boundaries than they have in the past. And they have really some great opportunities to do that here at, when it comes to high schools because you've got, you know, Northwood is an existing school, but they're expanding that. And while they, they can't start that until they can move, the students from Northwood will be temporarily located at Woodward. So they have to complete Woodward first on Old Georgetown Road then the Northwood students will go there, then they'll tear down Northwood, rebuild Northwood to a larger capacity, and then when the Northwood students move back in, then Woodward can open up as its own high school. Um, and so you've got essentially, you know, one new high school coming on, but a large capacity uh, being added to Northwood. And then on top of that, you have the um, uh, Crown High School, which is further north, right? So you have two major high schools coming on board that are gonna impact almost all of the high schools across the county in some way. And so there's a great opportunity here for MCPS to say, let's rethink, let's do what makes sense in terms of boundaries here. Thanks, Does uh, the MCPS, do they have to, uh, when they submit uh, CIP, 
uh, application or for funds, do they have to also submit um, a social justice and racial equity um, impact? How the changes in boundaries and how the what they're proposing, how does that change the equity balance in the county? Not that you're aware of? I'm not aware Interesting. of that. Okay. No, and I w they don't, and, and I, I would also add that because the boundary piece of this comes much later in the process, yeah. right? So when they're asking for funding for Woodward, they don't know yet how, that's who's going to attend that. So who that's going to impact is, is difficult at this point for yeah. them to say. But when they do their boundary analysis, one of the things they'll look at is how does this impact, you know, these 10 different options they may look at will have different impacts from an enrollment perspective and then from an equity perspective. They'll yeah. look at all of those things during that process. I see. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. But in their, but, but the law doesn't require them to do the analysis themselves, but in their, um, in their submission, my, my question is a follow-up, in their submission to the council, you know, the, the council has a requirement for the social justice impact. So in their submission to the council, do they have to submit such a thing? I'm not sure that exists on the CIP. It right, exists exactly. on bills. Yes. On bills, no. but not, right, okay. No, then no, that's. And, and if we can go forward here, we need to make a recommendation to school board not to run it. Um, so if you could continue with your presentation. Okay, so here's a map showing the service areas of the high schools um, that will be included in the um, Woodward High School and Northwood High School boundary study scope, overlaid on our master, some of our master plan areas. As you can see, there's a long list of plans that are either underway or have been approved in the last 10 years and are still seeing active development activity. To ensure that there's adequate space to accommodate the enrollment impact from these various master plan efforts, planning staff is suggesting to add, send a comment um, saying that the planned capacity at Woodward and Northwood High Schools should be increased back to 2,700 seats when possible. Of course, we don't have any jurisdiction over the actual line items in the CIP, so we're just suggesting this. Um, the same applies for Crown High School, um, which um, MCPS hasn't announced the full scope of the boundary study yet, but we are um, pretty sure we'll be um, including multiple high schools in the mid-county area. Okay. So with that being said, the next steps, um, so the non-recommended reductions will be discussed at the council's ENC committee on March 16th and 23rd, or maybe one of those um, weeks. So staff is recommending that the comments provided in attachment two, which includes these new comments added on top of the full list of comments that we had submitted last year that are still relevant to projects, um, be transmitted to the council before the, um, before the March 16th meeting. That concludes my presentation. And, and just so everybody's aware, w what you're recommending is uh, support for the relocation of Burton Elementary School, increased capacity at Woodward and Crown in particular. And for Burtonsville Elementary School, some specific design guidelines oh, on okay. where to place the 
school building, parking lot, um, include um, site design elements that will encourage biking and pedestrian um, access. And, and uh, uh, the, the only comment I always have here is, is that uh, here the executive is recommending reductions for fiscal reasons and we're recommending spend more money. Um, uh, it is in our nature, it is what we do, uh, but I just recognize that problem that we have for the Do county. we have to tell them where they no. should? Cut. Cut. We don't have to tell them anything. <laughs> we have to say spend more money. I, I would also add that we don't know what the cost implications are, right? So yeah. we're just saying with regard to those three high schools, build them as soon as you can to the full mm -hmm. 2,700, but we don't know what that, what, how much money would need to be saved elsewhere to be able to yeah. make that happen. Right, and our approach to this in planning is prioritization, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, uh, I take it among the comments, I didn't see anything regarding the old Burtonsville Elementary School. So do we have any, you know, it is, I mean, I, you know, I, I live out that way. Um, and, and so it's a pretty big site. Um, do, do we normally make any recommendations about, um, I don't know, I don't want to call them defunct sites, but I mean, <laughs> do we normally make any recommendations about, about, you know, sites that are clearly, you know, no longer going to be used, but, you know, yet have uh, some incredible capacity. This is right off of Columbia, old Columbia Pike. And as, as Commissioner Hill noted, right down from the Burtonsville Town Center. That's my question. Tanya Stern, <laughs> Acting Planning Director, for the record. Um, I would imagine that if we had an active master plan in this area, that, that might be a topic of conversation. But, uh, but in this instance, I think we have the opportunity to use the uh, the ongoing monthly coordination meetings that we have with MCPS uh, to have a discussion with them once, you know, again, we don't know at this point what their plans are, but we have an opportunity to have a conversation with them about this. Okay, thank you. Do I hear any motions? Mr. Chair, I'll move that we support staff's recommendations on this. I think they explained them well and they make sense. Second. Second. Amen. Give it to him. Mr. Commissioner Presley was a, a second or a third in there. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, I think we had a lot of discussion here. Uh, I'm seeing no other further comments. All those in favor say aye. 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 All there, 5-0. Okay, thank you very much. I, I do have a, a follow-up question for Mr. Sartori. So in your additional remarks, you were describing the, the cooperation between MCPS and the planning department. But what I heard you give an example of is what I might call a micro-cooperation about sites. Um, and and um, Commissioner Branson kind of touched on sort of what I would call macro-cooperation, right, which is predicting and, and feeding that information in. And I, the, the question I'm getting to is, the Achilles heel there, of course, is that we aren't a centrally planned society, right? We are a, in, you know, ostensibly a free market society, so planning doesn't control which sites build out when to, to actually, you know, we can't say this site's going to build, this site's going to build, this, and this is going to be the impact on this particular district. And I just was looking for uh, maybe to explain that to anyone watching, but also just sort of saying that that really is the problem, right? Sure, yeah. It's, 
you know, I think people think it should be easier than it actually is um, for us to coordinate. And that the fact is, if you think about what we do here at the planning department, when we work on our master plans or think about even the general plan and, and thrive, you know, we're looking pretty long term. And it's difficult for MCPS to look 30 years out or to have any sense of what, you know, enrollment is going to be at a school 20 years from now. Um, and so they look in, in much shorter time frames. And so we, you know, we do work with them to, to say, look, we have these master plans that if this gets fully built out, it's going to, over an unknown period of time, have this potential impact on enrollments. Um, but in the interim, there's going to be turnover in existing neighborhoods. There'll be a lot of other factors that come into play. And so we have, you know, as part of those conversations, it's just a back and forth over what do you see in the short term? Let's not forget the stuff that's in the long term. Um, and we share a lot of data with them, uh, it kind of vice versa. They give us the enrollment data. We give them housing data. We give them housing trends information. We give them uh, student generation rates at a, at a very micro level to help them with their projections. Um, you know, and we give them uh, a, you know, our pipeline data so that they can get a sense of when do we need to start including the impacts of these projects that have been approved. So it's a lot of back and forth, uh, you know, through in, in, in terms of that MOU and what we're looking at is, we, you know, we've identified for us the, the master plan process, also the uh, school construction project uh, process and our, the mandatory referral component of that. And, uh, how how we interact through those efforts, uh, even the parks department and their parks planning effort that is included in the parks have been part of those conversations, so that's included in there. So we're really just trying to say, you know, at what stage are we going to engage each other and on what topics, and hopefully we'll be able to get better products for you know everyone and better planning in an, a very unknown future. Okay. Not Thank only you, do we not control the private development, we don't control the uh, child yield per household. We uh, don't. We don't. <laughs> kind of a supply and, side and, for And we don't control turnover, <laughs> which is a large part of what's going on here. So, okay. Now, question. Okay, I just want to clarify this um, because, you know, we transition away from the moratorium. But we still have, when we, do, when we evaluate developments, sometimes there's an impact uh, yes. assessment, and we ask the developer to contribute to the schools, no, based on how much they're going to generate. Um, so we do have some leeway in terms of you know, short term for, well, the, for the schools and the developers. Some, yeah. Anyhow, thank you okay, for your thank presentation. You. That concludes this item. Uh, do we need a pause? Yes. We need
Okay, it's March 2nd, uh, 2023. Uh, we're, we're ready to start item seven, briefing uh, uh, overview of rental housing in Montgomery County. This is a presentation that, that was made to the PHP committee. I gotta get my initials straight uh, already. And it's a, a very valuable presentation for the board's edification here. Thank you, Chair. Good morning. For the record, Lisa Gavoni with Countywide Planning and Policy. And I'm pleased to be here today to give a presentation, that, as Chair Zients said, that I had previously given to the PHP Committee on uh, January 30th. And if you're interested, I'm actually giving the sequel to this presentation on home ownership on Monday um, to the PHP Committee. So hopefully I'll, I'll be back showing that presentation too. So the county has started um, so the county has about 133,000 renter households, which is an increase about, of about 42,000 renter households since 1990. And even though the county has more owner households than renter households overall, over the past decade, we've been adding more renter households than owner households. Looking at the change between 2010 and 2021, for about every one owner household we were adding, we're adding two renter households. And when we look at the age of renters, not surprisingly, the highest number of renters belong to the 24 to 34 age cohort. But that doesn't tell the whole story. So yes, we all know millennials are delaying home buying for personal preferences reasons, for being priced out of the market, etc. But 70% of our renters, they're over the age of 35. And 46% of our renters are over the age of 45. This trend in decline in homeownership has obviously extended beyond the millennial age cohort. It's increasing, um, and we're actually only adding new homeowners on net for the on age 55 and plus age cohorts. And we're also seeing a delay in the transition from owner to renters for the 75 and above age cohort. People are wanting to stay in their owner-occupied unit for longer. And while 35% of all county households are renter households, disparities do exist by race and ethnicity. And so looking at the first green bar, you can see that about 22% of white alone householders are renters. But this number jumps to 58% for African-American or black households and 45% for Hispanic or Latina householders in 2021. And since 2010, the number of renter households has increased across all races on net except for white alone householders where it's declined slightly. The biggest in net increases, um, as we just talked about in the percentages, black renter households, Hispanic renter households, and some other race households. And not surprisingly, renters are more mobile than homeowners. The median, the, sorry, <coughs> sorry, renters are more mobile than homeowners. The median year renters moved into their unit was 2017. And 70% of renters moved into their unit after 2015, whereas the inverse is true for owners. 77% of owners moved into their home before 2015. And while I don't have this on the slide, I looked this up by income, and you, this trend is really pronounced by income. Over half of low-income renters making under around $35,000 a year, they were in their unit for less than two years. Um, this difference in mobility is primarily reflects a higher turnover rate and housing instability for lower income renters in the county. 
our rental housing stock and our, and honestly just in general, our housing stock, it's aging. Um, the median year built for renter-occupied units is 1983, and 46% of our rental housing was built before 1980. And we've talked a lot about the implications for this in our master plans and recent regulatory cases is that we know that these older units, they're resources for the county. They provide natural affordability, and they are primarily most of the rental units in the county. But we also know that they're reaching the end of their useful life. Um, we're, we, we're, we haven't seen a lot of redevelopment recently. Um, we've only seen about demolition and rebuild of about 10 multifamily projects in the county in the past 20 years. But we know that trend is going to increase as, we become, as our units become older and that um, we see more redevelopment pressure. But redevelopment is, you know, a healthy part of the ecosystem and we can work together to make sure that we're getting the affordability we need in those units to replace that natural affordability. And when you look at this renter-occupied versus homeowner households in terms of income, you see a, a difference of nearly $80,000 in median income. Homeowners have an income of around $150,000 and compared to, just, compared to $72,000 for renter-occupied households. But that also doesn't tell the whole story. So 35% of renters make under 50,000 a year. But if you look at the dark blue and the dark green, you see that 34% of renters make, earn over $100,000 a year. And so we really see that bifurcation of both ends of renters. We have a lot of low-income renters, but we do have a decent amount of high-income renters in the county. But not surprisingly, it's a different story for owners. 70%, nearly 70% of owners um, make over $100,000 a year. And we expect that this trend to continue. We're only adding new homeowners on net for households that make over $150,000 a year. And the percent of households that are cost burdened, that are spending more than 30% of their income on housing costs, has, it's hovered around 50% for the past couple of years. Um, and this is largely due to this bifurcation that we just talked about, is that we have those low-income households at the end that are really stretching their income to be able to afford housing, but we have high income renters, on the other hand, that are really helping keep this percentage over around 50%. And cost burning is largely a phenomenon of low income households. This is a graph that shows incomes of just the cost burden households and where they fall out by area median income. And starting with the cost burden households, you can see that as you move from left to right, it goes from lower income to higher income. And so you can see that 42% of cost burden renter households earn less than 30% AMI, and 30% earn less between, earn between 30 and 50% AMI, which is about $70,000 a year. So in total, 72% of cost burden households earn less than $70,000 a year. And this trend becomes even more pronounced when we look at severely cost burden households, which are households that are spending more than 50% of their income on on housing costs, nearly all, 96% of, of severely cost-burned households earn less than 50% of area median income. So the next part of the presentation is market-based data um, from CoStar. And I'm going to read this slide because it's really important that I get the nuances out of what this data does and what it doesn't do. So the data comes from CoStar, which provides data and analytics on real estate markets. The markets rents reported by CoStar, they represent current asking rents of available units. This data does not include in-place or renewal rents. So what this means is that if a tenant receives a rent renewal with an increase and they accept that increase, 
This information is not included in CoStar. That's an in-place rent. If an existing tenant receives a rent, new, rent renewal and chooses to vacate, the current asking rent for a new lease for that unit is included in the rent information CoStar reports. Additionally, CoStar tries to capture any specials or concessions, and they focus mostly on uh, free rent and reduced rents. And CoStar data speaks to market trends, but not necessarily the experience of you know, every renter in the county. So next is a series of graphs that on the overall rental housing market on rent growth and rents. The first graph shows the market rents of units and rent growth in the county in both the asking rent, which is the orange line, and the effective rent, which is the green line. And the difference between the two is the concession. So it's like what we talked just previously talked about, free months rent. Um, and the blue bar is rent growth, and that's the year-over-year -year change in the rent charged on average. As you can tell, the county experienced a, uh, a dip in 2020, largely following national and regional trends. And then we recorded very, very high rent growth, the highest on record, in 2021. And, but you can also see that in 2022, this largely fell back down to 2.4%. So it's largely in line with past trends. And it's too early to look at 2023, but I did look at you know, uh, January and February rents recently, and it's mostly in line with past trends too. And so this is the same graph that I just showed you, but it's inflation adjusted. And a couple of reasons why we did this here is, one, we know we're operating in high inflationary market. The price of goods has risen. Property managers are feeling that the cost of maintenance has increased. But at the same time, we also know that we want to be sensitive to the reality of many renters. We've all heard the horror stories of you know, increasing rent growth, getting rent re renewal rates of 20%. And it's, while inflation has risen, it's very likely that the incomes have not risen. So it's important to show, we think, both. So after adjusting for inflation, you can see that rent growth in the county is very modest. In fact, the 10-year average is actually negative rent growth. We average about negative uh, 0.5% since 2012. Next, we're going to look at rents and rent growth by different market segments. First, we're going to look at the county submarkets. Um, the asking rent in the county is about $2.11, which translates to about 1940 as a weighted average for all units in the county. And you can see, not surprisingly, that a lot of our more urban markets, North Bethesda, Bethesda, Silver Spring, they have higher rents on average than the county. And our more suburban markets that are generally known for their affordability, Wheaton, Germantown, Gaithersburg, they are, have rents on average that are lower than the county. Oh. So. Commissioner Presley, you have something? No. I was I was just going to ask, but we skipped past that slide. If if there was a reason that you could determine for the huge spike in the rentals in in 2021, sure that that's was there. A, an, yeah, I think that's a great question. And largely, the national literature on this issue is saying that it's mostly a market correction to 2020. We saw rents dip nationwide, regionally, locally, uh, pretty significantly. That's a trend. That's a real outlier. And so, obviously, in 2021, right. there was a market correction, and there was also you know, coming out of the pandemic, a lot of people were moving it back in to our more urban markets. There were a lot of specials out there. So I think that's it's, yeah. it's partly that's the reason. Okay. Thank you. Welcome. <coughs> so next we looked at rent growth by submarket, which again is the change year over year in the rent charge. 
And we look at the orange bars, and we can see that in 2020, our more urban markets, North Bethesda, Bethesda, Silver Spring, they saw pretty big dips. Um, and our more suburban markets, Germantown, Gaithersburg, they actually saw an increase. And I think that's because we all heard during the pandemic, people were prioritizing affordability and space. And when you're telecommuting and you're, you're not sitting on, you know, you don't need to be as close to your office, you're, those things were prize amenities. So I think that's the, the reason why. Um, in 2021, we saw uh, a big, big rebounds in a lot of our, our markets. Um, the biggest in North Bethesda and Germantown. Germantown was a bit of a surprise for me. And I think that's partly because if you look interestingly at 2022, Germantown saw a decline. So I think you're largely seeing a market correction there is that uh, they're a little too ambitious with the rent growth and then it's back down to reality in, in 2022. And Bethesda is also an interesting example because we, as, as we know, it has the highest rents in the county, but it didn't quite see quite the rebound in 2021 that other markets like North Bethesda saw. And I think in my, this is a hypothesis, but Bethesda does something really well that other markets do is that they add a lot of housing. Since 2017, since the Bethesda downtown plan passed, they've added over 1,600 housing units. Now, some of those are condos, so they wouldn't be included to this, but they're very good at adding housing, new housing that helps keep that rent pressure down. So next we looked at rent and rent growth by jurisdictions. Um, regionally and comparatively, we're about middle of the pack. Um, we only Prince George's County has um, lower rent on a per square foot basis, but we're not that far off from our regional neighbors, especially Fairfax County. It's those more urban markets that have a, a price premium on that we're a little bit behind from. But if we look at rent growth year over year by submarket, we can see that in 2020, um, Prince George's County, they actually, they didn't see a negative, um, they didn't see a dip like other jurisdictions. And I think it's again, because they they're more known for those more suburban markets. It's more affordable, more space, bigger units. Um, but comparatively in 2020, we saw less of a dip than, than DC, Fairfax and Arlington. Um, and in 2022, we really did continue to be middle of the pack. DC and Prince George's County, they saw less growth, rent growth on average than us, but Arlington and Fairfax, they saw more. Um, so this is one of the last slides that I have, but the county has an average 10-year uh, vacancy rate of about 5.7%. And our we had a 10-year vacancy rate low in 2021 where it was sub-5% at 4.9%. Uh, and generally, from what I understand is a vacancy rate between five and 7% is desired. The closer you get to five and certainly under it, there's, there's room to build more housing. You have, a, you have generally indicative of a supply-constrained housing market. Um, so uh, I think what, what this data is telling us is that we definitely have room to build more housing in the county. And finally, I didn't put this in the packet, but I thought it was a nice ad, is that Mr. Sartori and I have been blogging about a lot of the work that we've been doing, a lot of the research on demolition permits, on previous use, and just some general housing policy um, information that I thought would be helpful to share with the, with the viewers that are watching. And that's the end of my presentation. I, I think it's always great that we can add facts to a, a policy debate.
and, and everyone is talking about the possibility of doing things with sort of rent control, rent stabilization, or uh, if you will, anti-gouging, one of, one of the three routines. But it's always great that we have the facts. Um, yeah. I don't, uh, I don't see any other comments or questions. No, no question. oh, Commissioner Hill. So one of, the, one of the trends happening, and I think it's mostly a coin of density, cost, and cost to build, but we're, we're tending to replace garden apartment form factors with high-rises. But it, it probably isn't in here, but it's related to the rental housing. Is there any proclivity to garden apartment form factor because of lifestyle that you can identify? Sure. So first thing is, you know, we we haven't seen a lot of redevelopment of Garden Hill. I think that that's been a, a talking point, but we, we really haven't seen a lot of it. But like I said, we're, we probably will see more in the future, so that's a conversation to be had. I think on a cost basis, it'd be really hard to replace a garden apartment with a garden apartment, because generally you need to build around three times as yeah. many units are as existing to make it pencil out financially yeah. for those costs. But I think there's a lot of value in the garden style apartment. Like you said, you know, I think the pandemic and the trends that we saw with you know, Germantown and Gaithersburg not seeing declining rents is because of that virtue of a garden apartment with their larger, they're more open, more mm -hmm. green space. I, and I think that that's important that we have that very type of housing in the county, and I think that I think that trend will continue. I don't see a lot of those redeveloping, and most of our multifamily is in the golden, the garden style apartment. Uh, we just tend to see the high rises more because they're in our mm -hmm. central business district. But that's a great point. Okay, Commissioner Panero. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> thank you for your presentation. I I think this is very useful, uh, very valuable to us. Uh, in terms of um, the uh, rental market. Um, I mean, obviously, as interest rates have increased, it puts, makes it more difficult for people to, uh, to purchase a home. And uh, the cost of housing here is very high. Uh, so we're, it's likely that we're going to see an increase in rental housing um, in the future. So this is, I mean, that's the pattern we've seen over, over the years, no, that, uh, um, and, uh, Particularly in, in during the recession of 2007-2008, uh, where there were a lot of incentives for people to buy their homes, a lot of people had to foreclose because you know there was hardly any. I mean, you could buy a house without, or uh, you know, going to home ownership without really, you know, not much of a uh, financial, you know, documents. Um, it was very easy to get a. a a mortgage nowadays is, 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 I mean, they've gone to the other extreme. It's, it's, you have to really provide so much to, to be able to purchase a home. In terms of the rental housing market, I'm kind of interesting, uh, you know, how you see your, your, the work that you're going to be doing in the future. Uh, I think it would be valuable for the board and for the planning to have an idea in terms of location of the rental housing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you've done that. I mean, you've, you've divided into different sub-markets. But I'm also looking at the, um, if you can even go into more detail about the uh, low-income and moderate-income renters. Um, I'm wondering whether you could look at, you know, how many in each area, how much, 
you know, the, the voucher programs, how many vouchers they have, the tenant, the, the project base, how many tax credits, low-income housing tax credits, how many um, MPDUs, um, because I, I know that, you know, thinking ahead about Thrive and equity issues, we want to have a balance of market and affordable housing throughout the county. I mean, that's that's a goal that that we've set out in terms of equity issues. So I'm I'm just wondering whether you've thought about that type of analysis, uh, looking at different markets and uh, whether, you know, like middle income, higher income versus affordable versus, you know, the, what we've identified as equity uh, areas, whether you thought about whether you could do that kind of analysis in the future. So we can, um, we're actually starting to work on a project where we're kind of looking at um, housing by different planning areas and what exists and how they're different throughout the county and we'll definitely be back to the board with more information on that when um, the council's having a discussion on housing targets on March 27th and we're going to present some existing conditions so that's a lot of the information that we will provide so it, it's great that you know you kind of got in front of that because we're, we're working on that right now I think the only thing that I wouldn't be able to do is the housing choice vouchers because of privacy but I can do LIHTC and MPDUs okay. and we have um, we have, we have an, uh, in our existing conditions, we have a column about affordable housing. And so we can definitely, we'll, we will definitely be back to the board with that information. Um, your other point about home ownership, I think that I would love to come back with my home ownership presentation because one of the most striking slides in that presentation is just the change in financing that we've had. Mm -hmm. As we went from about, you know, 22% of homeowners were financing with FHA and now it's down to 6%. And that's, yeah. FHA is the loan of first-time home buyers. It's the loan with people with lower credit, with less mm -hmm. savings, and yeah. they're being priced out of this market, and that really impacts on who gets to live here. Yeah. Um, so I think that I can definitely come back with that information. Thank you. Commissioner Presley. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Commissioner Bronson. Oh, you, you were looking at me. So, um, so first of all, Ms. Gavoni, I am really happy to see you because I think this is about the third time you tried to give this presentation. This is the third time. And, and I think you've been postponed every time. So, so, so w welcome to the hot seat, you know. Um, but you know what, what I uh, took away from your presentation, which I found really disturbing, was, um, was, I think you called it the turnover rate that people, you know, who who moves in two years or, or less, and and um, and and the reason, you know, not only the income level that, you know, that seems to be affected by this need to relocate every few years, but you know the practical effect that has, you know, that that has practical effects on on how people live, on their children, on you know, how they establish, you know, how people establish um, ties in communities. I mean, that's, that's no small thing. You know, if you have a substantial number of people who have got to pick up and leave, um, that, that has a kind of societal um, effect that, you know, that is very disturbing. So, um, you know, and I don't know, you know, I won't be here to see it, but but I certainly hope that you're able to look at how um, that kind of um, displacement, 
um, has has other effects, you know, and whether there are any policy or planning um, efforts that can be made, because you talk about equity, that is equity, you know, that is equity. Um, um, so, so I'm wondering if um, if you could provide some analysis for the future um, that explains how you know we stop, you know how the county can stop this kind of pain. Sure, I mean I think it's important to note that we, we've done a lot of work on, on neighborhood change, and, and Mr. Kraft and our research department will continue to work on that. But you know I think the, the interesting thing about turnover of rental is you know about one third of all rental units turn over in the county every year, and not everyone is being displaced. Some move on to home ownership. If you're like me, uh, my coworkers like to joke that I've lived in every building in Silver Spring. I've moved uh, four times. I just call it research. Um, and, so, <laughs> and so there's different reasons that people move, but I think your point stands, especially for lower-income households that are you know, continually being priced out, that that has a long-term effects on stability and setting roots in neighborhoods. If you lo looked at both uh, mobility and age and income, you'll find some correlation that young people don't make a lot of money and they move a lot. Move. Yeah. So, so those are all together. Uh, I see no other comments. Thank you for your presentation. Um, this is our last item for, for this board. Again, we, we thank uh, Commissioner Presley, Commissioner Branson, and Commissioner Hill for their service. Uh, we have Jill some Hill. refreshments outside if you're interested, but do you have, would like yes, to Yes, I'd something? just like to make a comment. It's been an honor to serve, especially with the consummate professionals yes. here at MNCPPC. Um, thank you for each of the staff and the colleagues for your support. Um, I wish that, the, that all of the citizens engaged in planning and development matters could see the work done here from this side of the dais. It is really quite remarkable. Thank you. Yes, it is. Thank you. I, I second that that emotion, Commissioner uh, Hill, and it has it has been an honor, and and um, I I'm sorry I can't participate with the refreshments. So somebody please uh, raise a glass to the staff for me. Uh, it's been a pleasure serving with each of you, and I wish the new board the best. I, I have every confidence that Mitra Pedroum, who will be taking my place, is going to be fantastic. So I wish all the best to the next next lineup. Thank you. Commissioner Branson. Yeah, well, you know, I want to thank you all. It's been a pleasure to serve with you. This is, uh, you know, y'all the hard, hardest working staff in show business, um, and and yes. so it's it's been really great. I, um, you know, I um, have served on a lot of boards and commissions in in this county, um, and you know, and and this has been a wonderful experience. It's, it's allowed me to just really meet a whole lot of great people. Um, I hope I, um, I hope I, uh, didn't make anybody too upset, <laughs> um, but, you know, that is, um, that is essentially what, um, what I think we're all called upon to do to make each other think, you know, because, um, a boss of mine used to say, if everybody's always agreeing, that means somebody ain't thinking. So, um, so you know, I want to thank you all. I want to also thank my fellow commissioners. It's been an honor and a pleasure. I've, I knew Jeff before. I knew, um, but it's, it's been a, an honor and a pleasure to, to get to know you all. So, you know, as they say in the movies, happy trails. Look forward to seeing you all again one day. <laughs>
Commissioner Pinero. Yeah, I'd like to um, just uh, thank um, Commissioner Hill, Presley, and Branson uh, for stepping up, and, and you know we're we're here temporarily, and as an acting board, I think we've all recognized the um, the the professionalism and the the amazing job that the staff does here and uh, yes. you know you, you guys have stepped up just like Jeff and I have and uh, thank you very much it's been an honor meeting all of you thank you thank you yes uh, <laughs> planning director if I can just close it out again, Tanya Stern, acting planning director, uh, since I didn't have a director's report this morning, wanted to take take this moment uh, to also thank uh, Commissioner Branson, Commissioner Hill, and Commissioner Presley uh, for your service uh, on the board. Uh, we really appreciate you all uh, deciding to take this role during this important transition period uh, for the commission. and. Just wanted to say that we greatly appreciate your very active engagement um, in all the matters that the planning department has brought to the board. You have definitely asked lots of questions, raised a number of issues, and we've had very robust uh, discussion, and we very much appreciate that and feel that your uh, contributions have helped to make uh, 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 the projects that we've brought to the board uh, better projects as well as uh, uh, help to inform uh, the plans and initiatives that the planning department is responsible for. Uh, and so we hope that you all will continue to stay engaged uh, after your time on the board. We have lots of projects underway still, um, <laughs> and we look forward to uh, continuing to, to engage with you and uh, through those efforts. Thank you, and with that, Thank we you. are adjourned. Thank you. <laughs>